Hello everyone, this is Volts for August 21st, 2023. Me, on an Australian podcast. I'm your host, David Roberts. While I was down under in Australia, I appeared on a show called A Rational Fear, a pod about climate change, which is, I'm told, the winner of Australia's Best Comedy Podcast. Or more specifically, I appeared on a spin-off show they're doing called <clears throat> The Greatest Moral Podcast of Our Generation, a series of interviews with climate types hosted by comedian and journalist Dan Illich. It was short and fun, so I figured, why not share it with the Volts audience? Enjoy, and do check out Irrational Fear sometime. It's quite delightful. I'm recording this on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I encourage you all to think about whose land you're on and the wealth of the life that you enjoy of that land and why you enjoy it. As we head into this referendum month, um, I think it's all upon us all to kind of think about listening more. And if you don't know what the voice referendum is all about, go and find out. Let's try listening. Despite global warming, a rational fear is adding a little more hot air with long-form discussions with climate leaders. Good and bad. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The heat waves and drought. Greatest. Mass extinction. Moral. We're facing a man-made disaster. Podcast. They're the climate criminals. Of our generation. All of this with the global warming and that, a lot of it's a hoax. The greatest moral podcast of our generation. Goombog, for short. Every now and then, the Irrational Fear podcast turns green. Um, we talk to someone who is super interested and who lives and breathes climate on a podcast I like to call The Greatest Moral Podcast of Our Generation, or Gumpug for short. And I'm excited for you all to meet our next Gumpug guest. Since about 2015, I have been following his writing on Vox.com and The Grist, but in more recent years, I've been listening to his podcast and reading along with his newsletter, it is Vaults, or rather the presenter and the writer of Vaults podcast, David Roberts. Welcome to Irrational Fear. So glad to be here. Or welcome to the greatest moral podcast of our generation. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I can keep that uh, acronym in my head. But. <laughs> well, you know, it, the, the first guest on the greatest moral podcast of our generation <laughs> was uh, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who, oh my goodness. who coined the phrase that climate change was the greatest moral prob- problem of our generation. I see. So uh, that's, why, uh, that's why we called Gumpug Gumpug. <laughs> and you are one of the foremost experts when it comes to climate and energy. I love vaults. I, I devour it. I, I listen as often as I can. And, you know, for such a complex and often combative topic, quite frankly, you know, your voice is so calming and reassuring. Um, Thank you. I mean, you could sell anything, and which is why you're here today <laughs> to sell us some small modular nuclear reactors. Exactly. And carbon capture and sequestration. <laughs> that's my that's my thing. <laughs> well, let's, let, I mean, it's such a sprawling conversation I'd love to have with you. Let's start there. We do hear a lot from a very small subsection of our politics, all about small modular nuclear reactors. In fact, Barnaby Joyce who at one time was a leader of a party in this country, he said, people aren't talking about the cost of living down at the supermarket. They're talking about small modular nuclear reactors. <laughs> Are they? <laughs> Are they? Where? So I want to ask you, David Roberts, is anybody talking about small modular nuclear reactors? 
I mean, yes, people are talking and talking and talking about them. The the more relevant question is anyone building small modular nuclear reactors? And the answer to that is a big no. So <laughs> I think they play more of a rhetorical role than an actual physical role in the energy system. Why is there this energy, for better, no pun intended there, around small modular nuclear reactors? Why is this conversation happening now? Why... Is there a big drumbeat happening, not only in Australia, but other countries for it, when there is no working models anywhere in the world? There's two answers to that, a cynical answer and a less cynical answer. The cynical answer is if you need something to say about climate (laughs) policy and the other party has already claimed renewable energy, you need something to talk about, (laughs) right? You need a climate policy and and, and there's nothing left to, to grab but nuclear. So it's a... And, and you want to, you know, claim to have a policy, but in practical terms, delay any actual real solutions. That's the cynical answer. The less cynical answer is renewable energy is variable. It comes and goes with the weather. So you need what's called firming. You need sources that can firm up renewable energy, i.e. that you can turn on and off at will. And and right now, gas is serving that role. And so... In a decarbonized system, you need something else to serve that role. So exactly what will serve that firming role, we don't completely know yet. Could be batteries, could be geothermal, could be, you know, a a hydro or small hydro, or it could be SMRs if they ever come along. (laughs) So so they could, you know, there is a, a role for that kind of thing in the energy system. I'm excited to have you here because you're in the country. It's great to see you face-to-face because, first and foremost, I'm a super fan. But, two, we're at a really weird spot right now in Australian politics and, I guess, global politics when it comes to climate. We're about a year on from the Inflation Reduction Act. We had Rich Duke on this podcast about a year ago when it got announced. How has the IRA been and where is it still lacking? The headline news is that there have been, I think, around $70 billion of announced new manufacturing facilities and industrial facilities announced in the wake of IRA. So it has unquestionably sparked a huge flood of new investment. Is this because the IRA is like one of the core tenants is all kind of transport need to be built in America in order to get this government money? Yes, it- there's, a, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, um, you know, the buy, the buy domestic sort of provisions in IRA, um, you know, so everybody's coming to the U.S. so they can, so they can claim that. So th- that's part of it. And also I think, um, you know, um, estimates of U.S. Uh, economic growth have been revised upward a couple of times in the wake of IRA. So it is absolutely sparked growth sparked a huge wave of investment. But in the larger picture, there are still big chunks of IRA that are where the implementation is being hashed out. So we really don't know yet. It really has not come into like the, the like all the subsidies for household stuff, demand side stuff, household stuff, your heat pumps, et cetera. Like, like uh, they were just announced, like the, the structure of those tax credits was just sort of came out last week. So too early to tell with those and things like the green hydrogen subsidies, which are billions and billions and billions of dollars. The U.S. Treasury Department is still beavering away trying to put those together, figure out how they work, figure out the requirements for those. So in, in a, lot, a lot of the bill 
hasn't even come into effect yet. So it'll be a couple of years before we really know what happens in the wake. But it's clear it's sparking growth and investment. Hey, this is a very tough question for you. If Trump gets in. <laughs> oh, God. Everybody keeps asking me this. Everybody keeps asking will, me this. What will happen to the IRA? Everybody asked me this, and I get the strong sense that they want me to say something other than the obvious answer. <laughs> But I'm afraid I have only the obvious answer, which is that it would be totally apocalyptic. Uh, not only, I mean, f- for everything, but, yeah. but, but you know, like the, the Heritage uh, Foundation, the sort of right-wing think tank, mm. you know, for some definition of think. Yeah, I love these words, like the Heritage Foundation and generally the conservatives. They don't want to conserve anything and they're not interested in the heritage uh, of anything. I know, I know. But they've already put together a plan, a very concrete plan to roll it all back. So their intentions are clear. So it would be, it would get nuked, basically, is the short answer. Okay. You're in Australia, I understand it, to do some side events around the ALP conference later this week. How have you been soaking up Australia and Australian culture and Australian politics to get a kind of a grasp on where we are with climate policy? Yeah, well, I you know I spent a couple of days in Canberra talking to politicians, and I've I've been talking to you know philanthropists and activists and business people. I've been talking, 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 talking. That's why my voice is so uh, uh, scratchy. My strong sense is that I am here pushing on an open door. The question of whether something big needs to happen is settled and what remains to be seen are the details so I, 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 it really seems like an inflection point uh, I mean this is not strictly energy well it is but it isn't but when it comes to our own scope three emissions in Australia this and our own emissions targets in Australia our government keeps <laughs> signing off on new gas projects and new coal mines uh, as does as does America. Where do you see similarities in this kind of talk versus action disconnect between our two countries? Well, I think what's happening is, and you see this in virtually every fossil fuel producing country, which is they are trying to say, yes, let's reduce our domestic emissions. Let's decarbonize ourselves, but then let's go on exporting fossil fuels to everybody else. And of course, Everyone can't do that, right? No, <laughs> like, no. like, so, so I mean, the, the, the trickier argument is talking, is, is trying to give Australian policymakers some sense of what could replace and improve on their export economy that they now depend on. I mean, Australia completely depends on fossil fuel and, and, and iron ore exports at the moment. So, so the question is, what role could... Australia play in a clean economy and still maintain its sort of healthy exports. And that has a lot to do with, I'm sure you've heard these discussions, critical minerals, processing critical minerals, processing iron ore to make it green so that people can make green steel. I mean, the, the, the world needs these clean materials and Australia is awash in them. Well, whose mouth has been chewing your ear off about that? Like who? Every, every, everyone. <laughs> who's every, kind, who's every, kind of who's who's lobbying you to tell these to tell these lies? Not these lines. <laughs> these not these lies. These lines. Yeah, everyone. You know, because that's the big question for Australia: is 
what, if anything, can replace or, or at least diversify. I mean, you know, Harvard issues this um, list every year of, of countries by economic complexity. Mm. And I think Australia is like 70-something right down near Nigeria. It is really 100%. It's because we have two major exports, Rocks and Hemsworths. There are two (laughs) major exports. And you're out of Hemsworths. (laughs) I think we found a renewable source. It's okay. It just takes a while to regenerate. I I assume they'll be producing new Hemsworths uh, shortly. Yeah, so 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 every that's on everyone's mind, and 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 one of the big features of Ira is you know the U.S. and and a large pool of global capital is going to be looking around for sources of these materials that aren't China, basically yeah. that are that are friendly sources of these materials, and Australia is on the front of the line for that. So it's a huge opportunity for Australia. When it comes to our unique um, political landscape, what do you? Have you gotten across that? What do you find most interesting about that? Oh, my goodness. So many things. Um, <laughs> let's say I'm extremely jealous of compulsory voting. Okay, yes. <laughs> I'm extremely jealous of ranked choice voting. Yes. Uh-huh. I'm extremely jealous of having an independent nonpartisan commission that does districting rather than partisan gerrymandering. Okay, David, you're you're talking to an Australian audience who takes all this for granted. What we think is so weird is like, what? Like, you you wait for CNN to call the election? (laughs) There's like, no, no one's actually, what, you just, you let some Republicans and Democrats decide who won in that that particular city? Don't (laughs) don't remind me. And you know what else I find super, super fascinating, which absolutely could not exist in America's dysfunctional system is the sort of rise of the teals, the sort of independence, the sort of what I guess back home we would call moderate Republicans, which is almost pretty much an extinct species back home because we have such a binary system. But here you have room for a little variety, a little complexity. It's much more interesting than, than America's extremely boring left V right, red V blue. Everything is polarized one or the other. Like it's just uh it's, it's mind-deadening. So it's just interesting to have some complexity. I've spent a lot of time in America. I've worked a lot in America. When I explain to people that Australians aren't really polarised by political party because of compulsory voting, because everyone has to vote, no one has to pick a team, and what we essentially do as a population is stand back with our arms folded and go, all right, impress me. Yes. <laughs> and that's... And, That's and, kind of it. Like we're, we're, and we're, political we're, parties don't go out picking and choosing their voters, right? They don't. They don't win. <laughs> oh, by, gerrymandering! They don't win by choosing voters because no, no. everybody votes. Oh my god, gerrymandering is a whole other thing. As well. I mean, the the U.S. political system is dysfunctional in so many ways. I I could go on and on. What about the room itself? What about you were in Canberra? Who struck you as an interesting character talking to them? Well, um, I assume you would have been protected from the crazy ones. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I did. I was not forced to to deal with any of the crazies. You know, I did a little roundtable thing with Chris Bowen, the energy minister, and and uh, he was nodding along and seemed very, you know, on board and 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 said something that I thought was striking, which is that the U.S. IRA is probably the most significant climate event, even more so than the Paris climate agreement, which I thought was quite dramatic and I think defensible. Do you think that was a fair call? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the U.S. has still, despite its dysfunctions, has 
enormous soft power. It has enormous influence over people and, and, and just the sheer amount of money it's spending now. Like the other developed countries simply cannot afford to sit on their hands at this point. Like they've got to, you know, I think, I think that the message of the IRA, which I've been saying over and over again to everyone who will listen while I'm here is that the era of free trade, free market, neoliberalism is over. It is over. And, and the Biden administration is explicit that it's over. There's, there's a, there's a new economy, global economy taking shape around clean energy, around semiconductors, around all these things. And it, and the U S is taking active measures to shape its place in that economy and other countries need to do the same. So what do you see in 15 years? Like what, how will the economy, in 15 (laughs) years time, how will the economy be different? I mean, I'm asking you because, you know, 15 years ago, you were writing about climate. (laughs) I know. Don't remind me. Energy. Don't remind Uh, me. Someone who's who's had their eye on this, on this game for so long, like in 15 years, what, what do you see? Like every country, it seems, here's my understanding, watching other countries talk about climate from their perspective. They're all saying that they are going to transition to become a renewable energy superpower. It's not a slogan that we just have in Australia from like progressive climate people. You hear that. I see and read that in other countries everywhere around the world. It's like a a disease that's kind of caught. It's this (laughs) meme that everyone thinks they're going to be, but they can't, everyone can't be an energy exporter what what does it look like for you in 15 years? Like, what do, where do you see the, the board? Well, the problem answering that question is that in the U.S. now, with every election, the entire fate of the free world is on the line. <laughs> so, like, literally. No pressure. <laughs> literally, if Trump and the Republicans win in 2024, like, you know, it could be the end of democracy in the U.S. It could be that it could be that we double down on fossil fuel. It could be that we choose a sort of Russia-style sort of like as long as there are fossil fuels being used anywhere in the world, we're going to be the producer uh-huh. of them. That or we could have yeah. you know green utopia down the other <laughs> down the down the other route. Like I, it's so hard to predict. But I mean, I, I think you can see a few things. Like EVs are going to dominate. I think heat pumps are going to dominate. Electrification is going to take over. Energy, Renewable energy is going to be even cheaper than anybody now predicts, which is what has happened at every stage of renewable energy growth. It's always cheaper than anyone says it was going to be because the beauty of renewable energy, which is not true of fossil fuel energy, is that the more you do it, the more you build of it, the cheaper it gets mm. on and on. Uh, on and on to eternity. So it's going to be much cheaper and that's going to change. And and the question is, once countries can domestically generate their own energy, once fossil fuel importers are able to generate most of their own energy and no longer need and no longer depend on fossil fuel exporters, how is that going to change geopolitics? I mean, who knows, but it's definitely going to shake up the world order, right, in ways that I think are incredibly difficult to predict. Oh, yeah, of course. Like Japan currently is one of the biggest importers of, yes. of fossil fuels so yes. they can run their economy. Well, I mean, the, the, there it's a relatively small handful of countries that are fossil fuel exporters, so most countries are going to benefit from this. Most countries are going to be better <laughs> off when they're generating their own energy. It's only the exporters that really have anything to lose here. I hear what you're saying. We're going to have to find a new source of Hemsworths. This is what, this is what you're saying. <laughs> Renew, renewable Hemsworths. <laughs> It's interesting. I think it was your podcast. You were you had somebody on talking about batteries within appliances. 
I remember that this is I'm, that's a geeky one. I is, that one. Yeah, I, I forgive me, David. I'm very excited to talk to you, but most of the time I listen to you, it's in the shower. Uh, so. <laughs> more, more than I wanted to know, but that's a. <laughs> Because it's a great place to listen to podcasts. Uh, and I think there's something really interesting with um, stovetops and uh, water heaters and all these large appliances that need uh, power at nighttime to have batteries with inside them to run them. That was, that was a, all this kind of interesting innovation. Who's going to be making those next lots of appliances, do you think? It's a good question, right? Because what you generally big established, I mean, this is true, I think is sort of a truism of, of business scholarship, which is that big established incumbents are not generally particularly innovative. So it's probably going to be a bunch of little startups to begin with. And the question is, I mean, the question is once one of the most fascinating things I see happening at the household level is that eventually all these appliances and all these households are going to be connected digitally, all the appliances are going to be talking to one another. They're going to be talking to the house. They're going to be talking to the neighborhood. They're going to be talking to the grid. So what happens in terms of emergent effects once you have literally hundreds of thousands of basically small scale energy producing, energy consuming, energy storing devices distributed around the grid, talking to one another and coordinating? I think that's going to open up whole new markets, whole new vistas, whole new things that we can't even really guess at yet, what that's going to look like. So we're going to see like startups, like, you know, I guess a great parallel would be the Teslas and the Rivians of the, of the kitchen world. Yes. <laughs> and what, then, what, and what, then the GEs will come along. And <laughs> yeah. You're going to, you're going to see a lot of startups, most of whom will end up carcasses on the side of the road as, <laughs> as with any new market, as with any sort of emerging market, you know, there's going to be one, you know, one or two Googles at the end of the line, yeah. but most of them are going to die along the way. But in the process, we'll be innovating. Yeah. Uh, I want to know a bit more about you. You don't give a lot away about you as a person on your podcast. It's, you know, strictly for the nerds. Uh, <laughs> but how did I'm, you... I'm very boring. So. <laughs> I wanna, well, I want to know a little bit about you. Like, how, how did you come to this this subject. How did you come to energy and climate? What was the catalyst for you? 100% random chance. I was, uh, I went to grad school for philosophy for a good while, you know, got along far enough in that to get a good look at academia, recoiled in horror, <laughs> dr dropped out, and moved to Seattle, was unemployed, bouncing around crappy tech jobs for a while. And literally the first time I ever went to Craigslist, I don't know if you guys have Craigslist. Oh yeah, we used, to, we used to. This was, I think, early in Craigslist. The first time I ever went there, there's just a little ad for an, uh, an editorial assistant at a small web publication called Grist, which was devoted to the environment. And to that point, I had no journalistic experience. <laughs> I had no particular experience in the environment or interest in the environment. Yeah. So I, you know, wrote this long overwrought cover letter begging for the job because I didn't want to get stuck in tech jobs, wormed my way into grist and just over the years wormed my way over into writing. So 100% self-taught in terms of journalism and in terms of climate stuff. I mean, you, you you say this sometimes in your podcast, how you're just a guy trying to learn about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and I you're not a, you're not an expert. At what point has that tipped over and you've become <laughs> an expert? Like at what point do you, does that shtick no longer, no I, longer count? I, I will never feel comfortable. <laughs> I talk to too many genuine experts to, to claim to be one. I've seen two, I've seen genuine expertise up close and I know that that's not what I have. I, I think I'm a, 
what it, a, a, a better than average educated generalist, let's say, uh-huh. who has an obsession with climate. Yes, energy. who's yeah. obsessed. And, and and I and I loved what I found was, you know, I I started at Grist and I was like, well, I got to find something in this area that really mm-hmm. interests me. And then I, you know, I gravitated to climate and clean energy because much like what attracted me to philosophy, it's just these big systems and systems within systems and how do they all hang together and how do you think about them and conceptualize their relationships? And it's just really intellectually, endlessly uh, fruitful and interesting. It's such a hard time right now with what's happening in the global north with climate, seeing your home country in flames is, is terrible. Like we were on fire three years ago, which radicalized me. You know, that, that moment was a moment where I was like, well, f- what am I doing this comedy podcast for? Let's really <laughs> lock in and, you know, do more on climate. How are you coping with kind of this time we live in after covering it for so long? My great anxiety is, you know, there's sort of two stories you can tell. One story, which I think climate people have kind of been telling themselves for a long time, which is enough of this stuff happens, enough disasters pop up, it's going to change people's mind and radicalize people and they'll come around and then we'll all start acting. The other story is the more disasters there are, the more stress there is, the more anxiety there is, the more dislocation there is. And people generally do not respond to anxiety and dislocation with rational forward-looking, <laughs> you know, reason. They generally stress and anxiety make people more small C conservative. So my great fear is that all these disasters are going to have people drawing in and putting walls up rather than throwing themselves more into international cooperation. Yeah. Well, from everything- I, wor- I worry a lot. You're here to do side, as I mentioned, to do side projects around the ALP conference. Do you have any kind of, I know it's weird to ask someone who's kind of outside of the political sphere, do you have any notion of how uh, you might be received from ALP people or how, how you might be received within the, the decision makers in Labor themselves? I mean, I think there is widespread fascination about uh, about the IRA, about the inflation reduction, there's just widespread interest in it, how it came about, what effects it's having, what political effects it's having. Because because the the big dynamic right now is my my feeling is liberal knows it needs to do something, but it has a little PTSD about the the grubby history of climate <laughs> policy here in the country. It's had a lot of backlashes. You're talking about the Liberal Party, not liberals. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I, I mean, Labor has has I think suffered backlashes in the past mm. due to climate policy, or at least it perceives. So it has a little bit of that hesitancy. So the question is just, can it screw up its courage to go big? And sort of that's why I think it's fascinated by IRA, because the U.S. has also had a lot of <laughs> history with climate policy, and the U.S. somehow managed to go big. So that's, I think they're, at the very least, their ears are open. So you're thinking IRA might see some kind of big, ATM cash injection in Australia. Like, you think that the government in Australia might uh, like do something as bold as IRA? Maybe, if it can overcome its reticence about big spending, right? Because the, the hangover of neoliberalism, the hangover of 
you know, treating the national budget like a household budget, all that nonsense, you know, uh, things needing to be revenue neutral, you know, terror of deficits, all this kind of like neoliberal hangover. There's still some of that around. So it's a little question of which way they'll fall. Spoken like an American. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so, um, but I think, but I think at the very least they're open in a way, at least from what I've heard that they have not been in a long time. It seems so counterintuitive that they are not more aggressive on climate and energy, clean green energy, because the Teals, as you mentioned before, when they got elected, they got so many seats, they're only one seat away from disrupting Labor's majority. And I don't know if Labor can see that, that 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 movement was not just about anti-coalition. It was about pro-climate, pro-green uh, energy, and I don't know if they can see that. I think they just see that, see these teal seats as a threat to liberal seats. But what they're actually threatening is the notion that if you don't act on climate, those teals are going to take your seats. Right. Well, do, do you, is the risk going too big or is the risk not going big enough? And that, <laughs> and I think that's really up in the air right now. I think there's a real, you know, they're very torn about that right now. Right. That's well, part of why I'm here is to nudge them in the one direction. <laughs> so who's paying the bills? Who's bringing you out here? Is it is it a big teal? It's the uh, <laughs> it's the big electrical union because because uh, another feature of IRA that's new for America is the unions are on board now. The unions are pulling in the right direction. And right. It's the same here because unlike previous iterations of climate policy, the IRA is all about jobs, good jobs. A lot of these tax credits are are conditioned on prevailing wages and using apprentices. And so it's, it's, it's a very pro-union, pro-good, well-paying job um, environment. And it's good to have the environmental justice community and the unions and, and the, and the uh, you know, the centrists, all the factions of the left are aligned for once, which is <laughs> Not the normal state of affairs. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, quickly ask you this. Uh, so I saw uh, two nights ago you were at um, you're at the MCG watching uh, AFL. Yes. What did what did you think? What did you think uh, of I, AFL? I, I, I saw the the uh, the the ruse fall to the bombers, <laughs> and and I tweeted out. I, I said I, I'm here at the AFL game and I'm rooting for the bombers, <laughs> and was quickly informed by a number of Australians <laughs> that I might want to use different nomenclature. Yes, yeah. 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 Rooting means fucking, Robert. <laughs> yes, I'm, I, it turns out I'm barracking for the bombers. Excuse me. That's great. Well, um, thank you so much for hanging out with me on the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Uh, it's a real thrill to meet you, and I'm a big fanboy, so hopefully many of our listeners can jump over to the show notes and click the link and go listen to your podcast as well. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Hey, no worries.